the absolute weight of the unknown is more than what they can bear. And everything about this night has them on edge. I mean, they've entered, you know that, hundreds of cities before, none like this. Just the way the week started set them on tilt. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his power. They've walked with him for three years. But he calls two of them out of the 12 and said, I want you to walk into town, and the first car that you see, I want you to steal it. Well, that's, that, that's very un-Jesus-like. I know they didn't have a car back then. They had a donkey or a young colt, but that's what he said. I want you to go in. I want you to steal it. Just Seriously? Yeah. If anyone yells at you, just say the master needs it, and you better take off. Two of the disciples walk into town, and they got to be talking. Is this a test? Are we supposed to go through with this or not? I mean, they came in red letters. I just don't know. And sure enough, they walk into town, and there's a donkey tied up, and they're like, you take it. You take it. I'll watch you. Just take it. And they walk up, untie it, start to go, and someone's like, hey, that's my donkey. And they're like, the master needs it. (laughs) They're letting us go. They bring it back, and he sits on it. And he's all, now we're going to ride in. And they're astonished. Out of all the cities they've walked into before, out of all the times they've followed Jesus in and out of towns and villages, he's never ridden into one, let alone this city. At this time, that week, Jerusalem, it has swelled 20 times its normal population. Every good Jewish family wants to come to Jerusalem for this week. At this time, they celebrate one of the most holy of festivals, Passover. Remember Passover? It goes all the way back. All the way back to about 1440. All the way back to 1440 BC when your people were enslaved in the greatest empire in the known world, Egypt. And you cried out. And your God came and brought the mighty Egyptian army to its knees, ripped that nation with plagues, the last one being an angel of death. Oh, but that will pass over the Jewish houses if they put blood on the doorway. And that night they huddled inside with their families as the angel passed over. And for 1,440 years they've been celebrating this act. And for 1,440 years your little nation has been traded as a pawn amongst world empires. The Egyptians... The Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, the Greeks, now the Romans, and you're tired of it. And it's on this night, in this city, everyone comes together, and they have a meal, and they lift a cup, and they remember you do have a God that saves, doesn't he? And for the last three years, they've been hearing the stories. For the last three years, the rumors have been running rampant. Apparently down by the sea, there's a man that can step out and walk on water. There's one that can talk to storms and wind and waves, obey. He's gone into a stone house in the middle of a village and he touched a 12-year-old girl who was dead and breath came back into her body and she sat up. He's fed 5,000 people out of one lunchbox. He's walked by the city gates and heard the men crying and in the midst of... He spit a loogie in the mud, (laughs) took that mixture and put it on the blind guy's eyes, and now he can see. It's not just what he's been doing, it's his teaching. Not teaching that the weak-minded need. It's not a crutch for the simple folk. It's a type of teaching that makes sense out of life, that grown dock workers, big barrel-chested men who row wooden ships for a living, who throw heavy nets, hear it and say, I'm in. I'll leave the docks. 
I'm with that. And for three years, it's been building. For three years, his power. For three years, his teaching. And of all the places and all the times and all the cities and all the world, it is that city swelled 20 times its population. Everyone coming to celebrate a God who can save you. He decides we're going to go into. And he goes, I ain't walking this time. I'm riding. Steal me a car. And they start riding in. And the crowd is thick with people around all the gates. And when everyone sees it's him, it's like a shockwave that moves all across the crowd as everyone turns in the realization. Someone from the back fills his lungs and with enough guts, he just shouts it out. Hosanna! And it trembles down the streets. Roman guards look from the direction it came and from the other side, someone picks up the shout. Hosanna! Hosanna! And the crowd gets into it. Oh, that old Hebrew saying, save now, save now, save now. And the Romans realize that there's a a mob on their hand. They get together in groups of 20s and 30s. Guards don't dare enter the scene, but they watch with curiosity as this powder keg of a city just had a spark hit its front gate, and now it's starting to explode. Someone from the back gives out a shout. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the screams erupt. See, see to, to come in the name of someone means to come in the power, in the might of someone. Save now, come with God's power. Save now, come with God's power. And if, if as if they needed anything else, from the direction he's riding, the shout comes out the tunnel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of David. And the crowd goes crazy. You see, the last time you had any glimpse of political freedom was a thousand years before in a kingdom of David. Save now. Come with God's power. Set up a kingdom. Save now. Kick Roman butt. Set up a kingdom. And the crowds are screaming. And the disciples are walking next to a stolen donkey looking at Jesus going, this is awesome. It's about time we took a city like this. By the end of the parade, it's late in the day, and he makes a beeline straight for the temple courts. Well, that's right. It's the headquarters of his enemy, those who hate him, those who are tired that almost every page of his teaching, he claims to be God, he claims to be God, he claims to be God, and they put a price on his head. And he walks into the temple, and the Bible said he simply looks around, and he walks out, and he spends the night outside the city. One of the most bold, cool, calculated, strategic moves in all of history. He walks into his enemy's headquarters just to look around and go, I'm here. And he walks back out. Over the next three days, they try to trap him with with traditional views of religion, with the politics of the day, with the hot topics of the day, and he throws it back at them. And it finally comes time for that meal that night. And again, outside the city, He pulls two of his boys aside. Okay, now listen to me close. I want you guys to go down here and stand outside the city gate. I want you to look for a jar of water. Wait, wait, wait. It's going to be carried by a man. That's right, a man. And I want you to follow him to his house. And when he gets there, I want you simply to say, the master wants to know if his room is ready and take care of the rest. Go. And the two walk. I don't know if it's the same two that stole the donkey or not, but the two walk. I'm not trying to be sexist here. That's just first century historical. Women carried the water jugs in that day. No man would. 
And so the disciples sit by the city gate. Water jug, water, woman. Water jug, woman. Water jug, woman. Two water jugs, both women. Water jug, woman. Water jug, man. And as he slips through the city gate, they follow him. 10 to 15 people in between. Once you get inside the gate, it's shoulder to shoulder, sandal to sandal. The crowds are packed inside the city. The the smell of body over, the heat of humans in the Middle Eastern sun, baking on the cobblestone and the bricks. It's almost unbearable. It's a small oven of a place. And they walk, keeping an eye on the water jug, three blocks down, and it takes a right. And every time you move off a main street, it gets a narrow and narrow corridor, chock full of people, and then three blocks and another left. And it's a small passage. Maybe it should be two to side, but now there's dozens upon dozens in there and they're fighting through and the jug gets put down by the door. A man fumbles for the latch and the two approach, <clears throat> excuse me, and the owner wheels around. The master wants to know if there's a room ready and the man quickly looks up and down the street. Did anybody hear? If he's going to harbor this fugitive Jesus, his life, his wife, his kids, their lives are on the line and no one seems to have heard. He'll leave the water jug and nod The three of them will go around the side of the house, take steps up, and there he'll open the door. A table's been prepared. He's done his best, but he apologizes if anything's missing. I promise no one will bother you here. And as quickly as he showed them in, he shows himself out and he shuts the door. And under nightfall, Jesus and the rest of the boys will enter. And they sit around the table. And you could cut the tension with a knife. He's told them three times, I'm not leaving the city alive. He's told them three times, I'm going to hand myself over. I'm going to allow them to mock me, beat me, torture me, spit on me. I'm going to allow them to nail me to the cross. And in three days, I'll pull off Easter. And he's told them. It's in the Bible. And on that night, he stands around the table and he goes, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to the Father to prepare a room. If it weren't so, I wouldn't be telling you this. Where I am, you're going to be there. Thomas goes, we, we, don't, we don't have any clue how to get to heaven. He goes, I'm the way. I'm the true life. I'm the only way you're going to get to heaven. And Philip goes, can you just show us God? You know they're scared. And he goes, Philip, don't you know me after all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen God. And he's going to teach four chapters in red. It's his last night with them. It's famous last words. It's all he wants ringing in their ears. It's the most important thing he wants them to know. It's last night. You're going to remember these words. And it's John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's your homework this week. I want you to read it. Yep, you got homework in church. Sorry, that's how we're doing things now. If you don't read it, don't come back next week. You flunked. (laughs) It ain't my church. I can say what I want. John 14. I'm going to jump through a few of these chapters for you just so you can catch the gist of it, just so you know what's on his heart that night. In John chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 23 if you got a Bible. John 14, 23. And Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And, and by the way, he's going to say this multiple times that night. He's going to make it clear. If you love me, it's not because you raised a hand in church. It's not because you think fondly of Jesus. If you love me, it's not like, oh yeah, because he's Lord, he's God. He goes, no, if you love me, you obey me. If you don't obey me, you don't love me. It's easy. Simple math. You can do it on your own. Another homework assignment. Do I really love him or not? Well, I went to church. Shut up. He goes, are you doing what I told you to do? He goes, so let me tell you how this whole thing's gonna work. If you love me, you're gonna obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear me are not my own. They belong to the father who said me. That's the program, you got it? Well, I think I missed it. 
What do you mean you missed it? I just said, if you love me, you obey me. If you obey me, we're going to come and we're going to make our home in you. Do you understand that? Nope. Nope. You're going to make your home in, in who? In Peter? <laughs> he goes, okay, let me tell you a story. And the fishermen tune in. It's John chapter 15. Okay, I'm a vine. My father's a gardener. You following me so far? And they're like, I think so. He's going to cut off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he will prune. So it'll be even more fruitful. Now you're already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm a vine. You're a branch. If anybody remains in me, then I in them, and they will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch. It's going to be thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Okay, as the Father loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you're going to remain in my love, just as I obeyed my Father's commands and remained in his love. That's the program. Do you got it? They're like, who's, who's the vine again? He's all, guys, this is the last night. I'm leaving on this one. I'm trying to tell you everything you need for your Christianity. I'm a vine. I'm in Jerusalem, the hillsides around it, covered with vineyards. They get this. You're a branch. Remain in me. Your Christian life will happen. It will work. You will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do. Apart from me, he says, you can do. He's not talking to non-believers. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's not talking that people don't know him. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples. He goes, guys, I'm leaving. This is all I want to tell you. you. You obey me. I will be in you just like my father's in me. We will come and make our home with you. Do you get it? Not really. Okay, here's a picture. I'm a vine. You're a branch. You remain in me. I will remain in you. Remaining is obedience, by the way. He goes, your Christian life's going to work. Everything I'm telling you about is going to work. But apart from me, you can do 11 times in 10 verses, he says it. He wants one word ringing through their ears. He knows they're about to run away. He knows the guards are going to chase them off. And he wants one word in their head. He goes, guys, here's all I'm talking about. I just want you to remain. Remain, 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 remain. And guys, when you've done those 10 things, I got one more thing to ask. Remain. He goes, that's the program. By the way, if you go out and try the Christian life, you can do. Why did it take 22 years of my Christianity before someone taught me this? Oh, read the chapters on your own. It goes on and on and on. It's what sets Christianity apart from any other religion, any other philosophy, any other worldview. The God that calls you to live a type of life promises you can't do it says don't even try to live this life. The God that calls you to Christianity says on your very best you can do and says I will live it in you. 
I'll do it through you. That's why it's called Christianity, one who has Christ. You've been talking for the last two weeks about the Holy Spirit. Glenn's been teaching you about that we have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. But do we have a filling of the Holy Spirit? It's the difference. Is your Christian life dead or is it alive? Are you bearing fruit? Is there abundance? You see, I grew up in church hearing all these verses about an abundant life. Really? My abundant life was before I came to Christ. I mean, I'm glad I'm saved because when I die, I don't want to help. But man, this is far from abundance. I talked about a peace that passes understanding. Man, that's a joke. A contentment? Seriously? I hated going to bed when I wasn't tired. I hated being alone at night because I hated who I was with. There was no contentment in this life. It was dead. And the entire last night, Jesus closes chapter 15 by saying, when the counselor comes, who I'm going to send you from the Father, you know the spirit of truth who comes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. He goes, guys, don't you understand? I'm about to pull off the cross. He goes, but, 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 but. I'm going to rise again. I'm pulling off Easter So the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. It will show you who I am. It will show you how to live this life. It will convict you. It will give you that little Jiminy Cricket voice that you learned to hate or maybe put away. Hey, you shouldn't click on that. You shouldn't watch that. You probably shouldn't go there. You probably should apologize. Shut up. Where's that come from? That's not Chris. Chris tells me, live your own life. Do what you want to do. He goes, it's going to testify about me. See, if you don't understand that, he said, your Christian life's going to go astray. He's going to do this. In chapter 16, in verse 11, he goes, I tell you the truth. Glenn read this, I think, last week or two weeks ago. It is for your own good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You can tell the disciples are sitting around the table going, well, hey, Jesus, why don't you just stay with us? Well, you don't have to go anywhere. He goes, oh, guys, it's so much better if I go. Have you ever thought, wouldn't it have been so much easier if you could just walk with Jesus? Wouldn't it have been so much better just to have Jesus? And he's all, that's a stupid thought. He goes, no, 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 what about my life in you? Oh, that's so much better. That's going to give you the power and purpose of Christianity. Has it ever dawned on you that he closes this night by walking out to a garden because he knows When Rome finds out the house he's in, when they come and kick down that door, if they drag him down the middle of the streets with that city packed with people celebrating a time of Passover and a God that can save, there will be a riot of mass proportions. And Jesus understands no one else needs to go down with this. This is mine and mine alone. We'll go to the garden. They can take me quietly. And has it ever, ever dawned on you That in the midst of that, right before he walked out that door, he prayed for you, for you. He closes that room with a prayer. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the guys in the room to follow him. He prays that they will have strength to remain. But then in chapter 17, verse 20, he says this, my prayer is not only for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Has that ever hit you before? That last night, before they walk out to the garden, he stopped to pray and he prayed for Pomona. He prayed for purpose, church. He prayed for his disciples in the room, and he goes, my prayer is not just for these guys. It's for those that are going to sit in Pomona in 2017 that are going to believe in me because of this message. He goes, I pray for them. Jesus prayed for you. What did he pray for? He said, I pray that they may have the same glory that you've given me. I am now am giving them that glory. <gasps> that sounds awesome. What's the glory? He says it. That they may be in us, just like you were in me, that we're one. Chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, all in red letters. It's your homework this week. You're going to find that entire last night in that upper room, that group of 13, Jesus did not talk about the cross. Jesus talked about the empty tomb. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, your Christian life isn't going to work. If you got a note sheet, I want you to take that out. I know some of you neurotic note takers, you've been sitting there going, don't even realize there's blanks in front of me. We're going to get to those. <laughs> How much more we're supposed to have this Christian life. I want you to write this down. The first thing I want you to fill in is this. Jesus gave his life for me to take my life from me so he could live his life through me. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church in West Texas my whole life. They always preach the cross. Jesus died for you. Jesus loved you so much he died for you, man. Jesus died for you. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you from your sins. Yes, yes, Jesus died for me to take my sins, to take this life from me. But no one taught me that he forgave my sins so he could clean the slate, clear the decks, so he could put his life in me, so he could live this through me. No one told me he made it very clear. Oh, man, Chris, if you try to work for me, you're, you're gone and yet they close Sunday school in that church the same way. The little blue-haired lady after doing a flannel graph story always got in front of us. We're sitting there in second and third grade in our little bucket seats. And boys and girls, boys and girls, look, look, listen, listen, look, look, listen, listen. And we'd all look up. One day, well, you're all going to die. And if you do, you're going to go to hell if you don't say this prayer. How many of you want to say this prayer? And I grew up in West Texas. I knew about heat. Now bow your, bow your little heads, close your little eyes, say, dear God, and we'd all repeat, dear God, thank you for dying on the cross, thank you for dying on the cross, and forgiving my sins, and forgiving my sins, amen, amen. And now she said, boys and girls, look up, look, look, listen, listen, look, look, listen, listen, and we'd all look up. Now the rest of your life, you just serve him. Oh, what a pathetic definition of Christianity. And I fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker, I fell for it. And my Christianity was just as dead. I was so excited when Glenn called up some weeks ago and he goes, hey, we're going to be speaking on the Holy Spirit. Do you got anything? And I go, a couple chapters. <laughs> I'll come up with something. And to come back home, to come back here, where so many of you had so much patience with me. If you're in here today and you had a high schooler in the group when I was your youth pastor, I would love to meet you down front and apologize for everything. <laughs> Unless the Murray family, the Murrays are here. We owe us both apologies. You know where you are. Yeah. 
But for everyone else, oh, did we really rent out a beach in Mexico and buy $1,300 worth of fireworks? With your kids. Who does that? A youth pastor who has no kids. That was awesome. I got teenagers of my own now, and I'm like, what were you thinking? Mm. I loved hanging out with Eric over the last few years. I mean, I love that guy anyway, but down in Ecuador with that guy, got to know him. Man, have you guys upgraded in youth ministry around here. You finally got good leadership. I'm so proud of you. Glenn, one of my favorite, most encouraging dudes, I want to see Jarrett and worship. I love the changes going on. I know change is hard for folks, but we go all over and talk to pastors and conferences all over in this nation and others, and we tell them very simple. Man, a choice not to change is a choice to die as a church. If you're going to reach this current generation that's outside these doors, you can't do it with music and ambiance and stuff that's 50 years old. Nowhere in culture is that acceptable. Only in church. And I love what you guys have done. I love the changes you are going through. I know it's got to be painful for some of you. I still told people last night, I'm going to be teaching at First Baptist. And they're like, you better get rid of that. And I'm like, oh, that's right. It's, it's uh, man, I forgot what it is. It's something else now. Change isn't fun, is it? It's necessary. I got to come in and say, God, is this supposed to be for me? Because I'm already Christian. And what I like is it for the people out there that don't know Christ. They don't know if Jesus Christ is a savior or a swear word. How do we expect them to walk in these doors? Man, I applaud you for what you're doing. This is a church that over time, for the last 25 years that I've known it, has continually said, okay, we're good, but we got to change to be next. We got to change to be next. Glenn's like, we're talking on the Holy Spirit. I'm like, you know, we used, we used to take our students to Bass Lake. I don't even think you can take groups there anymore, but that was our water ski trip in the summer. I, I picked up Bass Lake because before I was here, I was at a church in Fallbrook, and we used to take our youth group there. And I remember going there, and my brother and his family tagged along one year. And my brother had little kids. My little nephew was four years old. His name was Caleb. Just wore nothing all week long but a swimsuit. Same swimsuit, seven days. That was the best camp. He still talks about that. You guys packed and ready to go? Got it. Swimsuit. <laughs> He's like, why do they call it Bass Lake? I'm all, because there's fish in there. <gasps> I'm going to catch a fish. I mean, you go at it. While all the high schoolers are down this little beach area, he grabbed a, a pail with a little handle on it, one of those little blue sand buckets, and he ran out. And he'd walk up and down looking at the water. And every little wave or ripple from a water ski boat that came in, he'd yell, fish, and he'd throw his bucket at the wave. And he'd splash out there and look in his bucket come back on shore and go hunting. About his fourth throw, he goes out and grabs his bucket and he starts yelling, I got a fish, I got a fish. We're like, no way. Everyone goes running down there and there's nothing in his bucket. And everyone laughed and thought it was funny. And he did it again, started yelling, I caught a fish. And everyone went running and he thought it was funny. It was funny for the first 20, 30 times. <laughs> and for the next two hours, he was yelling, he caught a fish and no one would run and look. Somewhere late in that afternoon, he throws his bucket. He yells that he caught a fish. Everyone's laughing. He pulls his bucket up on shore, and he sits it there, and he's yelling he's got a fish. And he runs up and grabs a high schooler and brings him over. And the guy looks in the bucket and goes, hey, everybody, he's got a fish. <laughs> We're like, no way. And we run and look in that bucket. It wasn't a minnow. It was a bass. And I, I still don't know. It was, it was just the dumbest bass ever created. Did the, did the bucket just happen to hit him on the head? I've... Maybe God just felt sorry and made him a bass right there. 
And he's got both hands in the bucket. And he's getting around. And he finally squeezes it. Little head on this side. Little tail on this side. And he runs up the beach. And he shows my brother, Dad, I caught a fish. And my brother's like, that's amazing, buddy. And he goes, i got to show everybody. They're not going to believe me anymore. And my brother goes, you, you got to put that in the bucket. you got to get a bucket of water first. Otherwise, they'll die. Okay, Dad, I'll be right back. And he runs up the hill. And he runs into the tent area. And he shows all the guys his fish. And he runs across where the bathrooms are into the girls' tent area. And he shows all the girls his fish. Then he runs over to the volleyball courts and he shows everyone playing volleyball his fish. And then he runs into the area where they're preparing for dinner and he shows everyone that's preparing dinner his fish. And then he runs to the horseshoe pits and he shows everybody in the horseshoe pits his fish. And then he runs over to the craft tables where everyone's gluing together popsicle sticks and making little beaded bracelets and stuff like that. And he shows everybody his fish. And about 30 minutes later, he comes down to the beach. And that little head's folded over this side. That little tail's crusted over this side. And you see him walk down to the edge. And he takes his other hand and he splashes water on his fish. And he splashes water on his fish. And he stands up and he looks around and he takes it straight to his dad. And he goes up in front of my brother and he goes, Dad, look. And my brother knows what's happened. And my brother got down and said, Honey, I told you, you had to put it in water or it would die. And with all the faith of a son and a four-year-old, he opened up his hands and he looked at my brother and he goes, you can make it swim, Dad. And my brother said, honey, I, I can't make it swim. He goes, yes you, yes, you, yes, you can, Dad. You can make it swim. And my brother dropped to a knee and said, Caleb, if we make this swim, it will have to swim free. And Caleb goes, okay, Dad. And my brother took that little horseshoe-shaped fish my nephew's hand, and they walked down to the water. And my brother looked at him and said, are you ready for this? And he goes, yeah. And my brother plunged it three times into the water really fast, and he picked it up, and he blew as hard as he could on the face of that fish. <sighs> and then immediately he took it, and he threw it out as far as he could. <laughs> and my nephew's eyes get big, and it splashed out there in the water. And my brother goes, did you see it jump? And Caleb goes, yeah, dad, but, but he's gone. And my brother said, I told you, he'd have to, if he swims, he has to swim free. And Caleb looked at the splash and looked at his dad and looked at the splash and, and went and grabbed his bucket and he started fishing again. <laughs> and my brother walked up on the beach and I go, dude, that was the smartest thing I've ever seen. And he goes, what else are you going to do with a dead fish? <laughs> he said, by the way, keep an eye on that. If that floats back up, get rid of it. And I'm like, all right, I'll do that. And for 20 years of Christianity, I lived it. My church preached over and over again the cross. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus loved you so much he died for you. Jesus died to forgive your sins. Man, Jesus died to forgive your sins. And because of that, you better serve him. Because of that, you work for him. Because of that, you owe it to him. And I bought it. What a pathetic view of Christianity. What do you do with the dead Jesus? Oh, you can sing to a dead Jesus. You can lift your hands to a dead Jesus. You can pray to a dead Jesus. Oh, and I promise you, you can spend your entire life working for a dead Jesus, but you do not get life out of a dead Jesus. 
and the entire last supper, he sat and said, guys, I'm going to try to tell this to you six different ways. It's better if I go. You're going to have me in you. It's why we're called the temple of God. He dwells in us, but it's up to us to be filled with him. 11 times in 10 verses, he forced four times. If, 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 if you do this, do what? Remain, 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 remain. You will bear fruit. This will work. But if you try to work for me, you can do. You couldn't do nothing to God before the cross. What makes you think you can work for God after the cross? You can't do it. He goes, you can't focus on just the Jesus that died for you. It's why we get to Romans chapter 5. Paul writes this incredible book to the, uh, to the Roman Empire, trying to let the entire world know. I believe it's the only book Paul ever wrote. Everything else he wrote in the New Testament were letters to churches, letters to Ephesus, Ephesians, to Corinth, Corinthians, letters to Philippi, the Philippians, letters to Colossae, to the Colossians. There were letters about questions and what was going on. He put one book, one entire theology, if you will, about God in one book, sent it to the heart of the Roman Empire so the world would know. And he gets to chapter five, verse eight. He said, God demonstrated or showed his love for us in this. Why we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, I got that. You were a sinner, you can't earn it, can't deserve it. Jesus died for you. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you got that. Now listen, since we have now been justified, made right, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? What? Oh my gosh. If you think you were saved because Jesus died for you, how much more are you saved because he lives for you? I don't, I don't know. He goes, let me say the same thing, just a little differently. For, because, if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled, a relationship term. We were, we were made right, brought to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been made right, shall we be saved through his life? Oh, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Paul understood the upper room. He understood the importance of what Jesus was trying to say. Oh my gosh, Pomona, if you think you're a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for you, how much more are you going to be saved once you realize he lives in you? Because apart from the Holy Spirit, you and the best of your Christian life will amount to absolutely nothing. Congratulations, you proved the Bible. And I lived with the dead Jesus. And oh, he died for me and he loved me and he gave me the cross. But man, it's nothing like the brochure. The abundant life, the contentment, all this stuff. Where is that? I'm going I'm to teach you one thing, five different ways. The importance of Jesus' death in life. They go rather quick, so sharpen your pencil. His death changes where I'm going. His life changes who I am. Jesus died on the cross and forgave me of my sins. That changes where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. But his life changes me from the inside out. Allows my marriage to become what my marriage is supposed to be. Allows my parenting to become what my parenting was supposed to be. Allows me to be the employer that I'm supposed to be to my staff. He goes, Chris, you can't do that. Apart from me, you can do. You can't do that. You couldn't live the Christian life before the cross. What makes you think you can live it after? Oh, that's a good point. You see, his death 
allowed me to become a Christian. His life allows me to be the Christian I become. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I step over that line of faith. His death on the cross forgave me, allowed me to become a Christian. But now I'm standing here going, I don't understand how this works. He goes, oh, buddy, now my life allows you to live the Christianity that you've received. It's Christianity. I was living Christianity. I was missing a T. Don't laugh at me. You've got a lot more letters to rearrange. <laughs> that was funny. I'm going to write that down. That was good. His death made heaven my home. His life gives this life meaning. His death made heaven my home. His life gives this life meaning. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, forgave me. That allows a sinner to no longer have sin to get to heaven. But man, now his life gives me purpose. It rearranged the scoreboard. It showed me what I'm supposed to be living for, what I'm supposed to be living life. It changed all the price tags on life and priorities. He goes, Chris, you can't do that on your own. You're going to think the same way you used to think. He goes, I'm going to send you the counselor, the spirit of truth that's going to go in your life and it's going to testify about these things. It'll change you, buddy. It'll change you. Your job is simply to remain, 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 remain. And buddy, when you're all done that, I just want you to remain. Just obey me. You will bear fruit. This will change your marriage. This will change your life. But, but you won't change it. Look at you. You see, his death got me out of hell and into heaven. His life gets God out of heaven and into me. His death, dying on the cross, took a guy that was destined to hell, forgave me. That now gets me into heaven. But that empty tomb, him living now, got God out of heaven and into me. Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins so that it's now a clean slate. He cleared the decks so that he can live in me. We are the temple. Well, why don't we feel that? Why don't we know that? He goes, the more you walk in obedience, the more you just pursue me. He goes, dude, I'll do this. I'll do this. You'll become more like Christ. Let me just ask you, Pomona, if the Holy Spirit left your life, how long would it take for you to realize it? If the Holy Spirit left you today, how long would it take for you to realize it? How much are we walking independent? I just got a dead, stale, crusty Jesus I've stuck in my pocket. Because at the end of this life, that gets me out of my hell option. And my Christianity's dead. It's based on working for a dead Jesus. There's no power or purpose in that, folks. There's you doing the best that you can do. And you're going to get tired and frustrated and disappointed in God. And he's going to look at you and go, why are you upset at me? I already told you that if you do the best you could do, you can do absolutely. You're just proving the Bible. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> His death forgave my sin. His life gives me power over sin. His death said, Chris, I'm going to forgive your sin. He goes, but now you're going to walk in me and you're going to learn not to click on the things you used to click on. You're going to learn not to stop on that channel late at night. You're going to learn that loving your wife is an action, not an emotion. And once your actions and your mind is set to it, your heart will follow. 
He goes, you're going to start treating people not the way you want to treat them because that didn't work out too well for you, did it? He goes, I'm going to be able to handle the pride and ego that you're going to deal with being a guy on stage all of your life. That's just going to swell up and blow up your thick head if you let it get to you. I'll constantly remind you who you were and that I love you anyway. I'm going to do this for you, boy. All I need is for you to remain in me. But apart from me, good luck. You believe Jesus died on the cross for you. You, you ask him to forgive your sin. I believe that gets you heaven. And I know without a doubt that gives you a lousy Christian life. Can you imagine a, sitting in third grade? You had to sit behind that kid in class that talked all the time, even if it was to no one but himself. You're sitting in class on a Wednesday, and he turns around, hey, guess what I'm doing tomorrow? And you're like, you're going to school. Today's Wednesday. No, I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going to Disneyland. They say it's the happiest place on earth. They say it's a magic kingdom. Tomorrow I'm going. You're not going to Disneyland. Shut up. Turn around. And all during class, he's like, it's a small world. And you're like, come on. (laughs) Thursday, you show up to school, and the class is quiet, and you don't think much of it. And then you realize he's gone. I wonder if he... Sure enough, Friday, sitting in front of you, it's a little black hat with the big ears. And you're like, it's the weekend. I can put up with it. You ask him, hey, Nigel, how was Disneyland? And Nigel's like, oh, everyone told me it's the happiest place on earth. It's a magic kingdom. It's supposed to be an amazing place. And we got outside and we had to pay the price. We had to stand in line. It was a family of four. It was $3,500. We got into Disneyland. We got our tickets and we got in line. It's round approximation. And he goes, we got in line. And we got in there and we gave the guy our ticket. And click, click, I'm in Disneyland. And I got in Disneyland. And my mom put out a blanket and we sat right there. And every once in a while, a train came by. And that was kind of cool. You know, they got flowers that look like Mickey Mouse. We took pictures of that. And then uh, we heard music from coming from somewhere, but I didn't get to see it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I got some cotton candy. And then we, we came back home. And you're like, well, Nigel, what did you go on? What do you mean? When you walked into Disneyland, did they give you a map? Oh, yeah, the map is awesome. There's all kinds of stuff to see and do in Disneyland. Did you go on any of that? No, we just kind of sat there. Wait. Nigel, where did you go in Disneyland? Well, we sat by the gate. We put our blanket right there all day. You didn't go to Disneyland. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Click, I was in Disneyland. Okay, you got in Disneyland, but you sat at the gate all day. Yeah, it wasn't as much fun as people thought. Now, imagine... Imagine Walt Disney still being alive. Comes walking through the front gates at Disneyland. Hey, buddy, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just sitting in Disneyland. You having a good day? Not as fun as I thought. Hey, do you mind if I show you through the park? <laughs> Imagine going through Disney World or Disneyland with Walt Disney. I bet you don't wait in line. I bet you can go in any door you want. See all the backstage stuff. And for 20 years, no one told me. That Jesus died on the cross, paid my price. I hand him my life and click. I'm in the Christianity and I'm sitting by the gate going, this isn't as much fun as people said. And yet they handed me a map that said this is the Christian life. They handed me the map, the one that created it said, oh, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Your value, your body image, your self-worth. He goes, I've come. You're going to have an abundant life. Well, that's fun for the brochure but I didn't see it lived out in my West Texas church. He goes, man, if you think the cross got you into Christianity, wait until you understand the risen life that takes you through this kingdom. That takes you through the ups and downs and the rides. That you walk this 
planet with the creator of it inside of you, never ever letting you go because he cannot, will not ever take his hands, his eyes off of you because you are made by him, you are loved by him, he paid the price for you and you are walking in him and we've made that boring and we've died and Paul goes, oh Christian, if you think you're saved because Jesus died for you, how much more? Are you going to experience Christianity when you understand he lives in you? That's right. If you were brought to God through the death of his son, how much more are you going to live because of his life? Everything we have is through him. Our life and worship, he says, is through him. You got into Christianity and now you're trying to live it? Oh, I promise you can do two more weeks you're spending on the Spirit. What's it look like just to say, God, I need to get rid of junk and walk in obedience and allow you to start changing me from the inside out? You're allowed to get your ticket stamped and lean up against the gates of Christianity and go, this isn't all that it was cracked up to be. But that's not the map our creator has written out for us. And his entire last talk is your homework. John 14, 15, 16, 17, he does not talk to his disciples about the cross at all. He tells them the importance of the life he's bringing back to them after it. And I pray to God you haven't missed it. God, may we examine our hearts, our hands. Are you a living God that we walk with? Are we practicing your presence daily? Are you changing us from the inside out? Can we see it in our relationships, our thoughts, our motives, our actions? Or God, are we people that are holding on to a Jesus that died for us and now we're trying to work for you? What a crazy image working for you. Like we could do something for you when you've done everything for us. God, may we be people that come back And simply decide to take each day and remain, 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 and remain with you. And then if we feel like doing extra credit, may we focus on remaining with you. May you take care of everything else. That's why you forgave us. That's why you cleansed us. So you could live this life through us. Forgive us for trying to do it on your own. In Jesus' name, amen.